please enjoy this encore presentation of 30 Minutes featuring Barbara Kingsolver reading from her latest novel, Flight Behavior, at the Temple of Music and Art. Flight Behavior follows in the Kingsolver tradition of fiction that addresses issues of social justice and demonstrates the impact of culture and politics on human relationships. Set in a small town in Tennessee, the novel tells the story of a young woman mired in an unsatisfying life who happens upon a strange phenomenon, a forested valley filled with silent red fire. Her attempts to share the sight and find an explanation throw her into a spiraling confrontation with her family, her church, her town, her continent, and finally, the world at large. Poet, essayist, and director of the University of Arizona's creative writing program, Professor Allison Hawthorne Deming introduced Barbara Kingsolver. Thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure and honor it is to welcome Barbara Kingsolver back to Tucson. First, I want to thank and ask you to join me in thanking the wonderful Antigone Books on Fourth Avenue. And remind you to support your local independent bookstore wherever you may be traveling. It's such a pleasure to welcome Barbara Kingsolver back to Tucson a writer we like to call our own because during her two decades as a Tucson resident, she gave so much to our community through the pages of her books, her moral passion, commitment, and generosity to environmental and social justice causes. She now lives in southwestern Virginia with her husband Stephen Hopp, who teaches environmental studies, and her two lovely daughters who actually have astonishingly grown up, as they do, Camille and Lily. Barbara grew up in rural Kentucky, earned degrees in biology from DePaul University and the University of Arizona. She's published 14 books of fiction and nonfiction, each of which engages deeply with the challenges of empathy. Her, own novels, her, her other novels include The Lacuna, Prodigal Summer, the now classic post-colonial novel, The Poisonwood Bible, The Bean Trees, Animal Dreams, her nonfiction books include High Tide in Tucson, Small Wonder, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, which has helped to change culture in towns and cities and rural communities in spurring on the local food movement. Her work has been translated into 20 languages. Her honors include the National Humanities Medal, the James Beard Award, <laughs> Locavores Rule, uh, and Britain's prestigious Orange Prize for Fiction. The Poisonwood Bible also won the National Book Award of South Africa. One of the many ways Barbara has returned gifts to others is in establishing in 1999 the Bellwether Prize for Fiction, which offers the largest prize for an unpublished work of fiction in North America, a prize dedicated to socially engaged fiction. Her new book, Flight Behavior, set in Bible Belt, Tennessee, finds the feisty young woman, Delarobia Turnbow, living on a poverty-stricken sheep farm belonging to her disapproving in-laws. 
Delarobia became a mother at 17. She lives with her dull husband and her remarkable children, making do with hardship and the small compass of her life. And I should say, one of my favorite characters of all time is the little boy, Preston. You may hear about him, but you certainly will read about him. What would happen, the novel asks, if you stepped outside one day, trying to walk out of a disappointing life and into a romantic fantasy, and instead of finding the hot lineman waiting in the cabin for you, you found that a spectacle of light glowing like a lake of fire, as Barbara writes, has landed in the sheep meadow. A monarch butterfly migration that has been misdirected by climate change from its traditional homeland in the mountains of central Mexico to this remote hillside in Tennessee. What you would see would depend on what you believed, as Barbara writes. Is it a miracle or is it a phenomenon that can be tracked and measured by science? Well, of course, a charming, fascinating, and handsome scientist arrives to help answer that question <laughs> in the person of Ovid Byron. Uh, and Delrobia's life and her passion broaden in ways she could not have imagined. Many of us are looking for a voice that will guide us through this political period in which, as Barbara has said, humans have stopped listening to each other and a time when climate change demands we listen ever more keenly. We're looking for a way to unify environmental and social justice movements towards a more just and sustainable future. Fight behavior bravely and with the great moral force and heart we've come to love in Barbara's work takes on this challenge. The monarch butterfly proving to be an indicator both of ecosystem collapse and of the human need and desire to get engaged about the fate of the world. Please welcome our dear friend, Barbara Kingsolver. I didn't even do anything yet. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that welcome. This is really exciting. I know where I am. I, um, I know this theater. I've been in this theater so many times. But I was, I was there. <laughs> I was looking here. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I just, just being here brings back all these memories of these great concerts, Sweet Honey in the Rock, uh, Leo Kotke. I think of this as the sort of, um, okay, well, I'll just tell you every concert I've ever seen here. Um, I always thought of this as the, the theater, the sort of, the theater for intimacy with the medium-sized celebrity. So, um, <laughs> sort of up, up to, but stopping short of Elton John. Um, I really, it's hard for me to think of myself in that category. Um, it's kind of stunning, actually. I wash way more dishes at home than your average medium-sized celebrity. And um, I'm guessing. 
and um, I'm, and put more bags in the, you know, the empty trash can. The person that puts the bag in there, that's me. The person that changes the toilet paper, you know, right? I mean, how can there only be one square left, right? <laughs> you know, I, weeks ago, I left my household for a month, you know, and I'm thinking, if I get home and there's one square, <laughs> what's up with that? Um, just kidding. My family is wonderful and wonderfully supportive. Um, and it, it, it's true, I have been on the road, but it's extraordinary to get here and to get this kind of um, a hometown welcome. This, is, this feels like, like a hometown to me. It is. I, I, spent, uh, I grew up in southern Appalachia. I moved here when I was 22 or 23. Um, lived the next 23 la years here, then went back. So I'm on some kind of a cosmic timeshare, apparently. Um, went back home uh, in 04 to be near my family. But it's always amazing to get back here because it does... This landscape is so exotic, and yet, you don't see it that way, right? It's, it's, it's very ordinary. But, you know, I, when, when you walk out of the airport and there's that, that blast of air, even it's November, right? And there's still... And there are the saguaros, and there's that sky, and there's the mint bar. <laughs> it's still there. Um, there are these things that you forget that I have. I forget this tactile little thing, like like you get out of the shower and you're in the hotel bathroom and you're saying, "Where's the hair dryer? Where's the hair dryer?" Oh, never mind. <laughs> Where's the chapstick? Um, it this this place is just it's. It's in my bones. I mean, I suppose probably literally there is a lot of calcium in my bones that I consumed here. And, um, I mean, the molecules of this place are in me, and I feel it. This is where I grew up, really. That's how I think of it. This is where I, um, I became... I learned to be an adult. I, I, um, I published my first little things here and my first big things. Um, I had my children here. I learned in this town what borderlands really are and what one country will do to another. And um, through all of it, you know, Antigone Books was always a part of that. It is kind of a miracle of the modern age that Antigone Books has persisted and more durable even than the mint bar and um, certainly more of an has had a greater impact on my life and uh, probably yours I'm just guessing and um, and so I mean I, I assume that every one of you in this room has been in Antigone Bookstore please keep going there please Remember that your local independent bookstore needs you, and you need her. So, um, so thank you for that.
Um, I'm, I've been watching Arizona <laughs> from afar. Your politics are nuanced. <laughs> um, but you know what? So are ours in Virginia. This is nothing is as simple as the news stories would have us believe. Um, it was an interesting night, Tuesday last. Uh, boy, we were all waiting for California's polls to close, weren't we? Wow. Kaboom! 55 electoral votes. It's like this giant elephant stepped on the scale. No, not an elephant. Uh, it wasn't, but, but it... Bad analogy. Um, but it, it's, it is an interesting time when we see our, our nation divided into with these, these technic, very highly technical maps where they touch this county and that county as if everything is red or blue and it isn't. It's so purple. And it's so important, I think, to remember that. And I'm hoping that right now, when for the first time in my living memory, we have a president who's not, who doesn't have to get reelected, um, this might be a moment when we can think about all these things we're not talking about. The way we have become so divided into camps into um, cadres, the Fox cadre and the MSNBC cadre. And the, um, the, it's getting easier and easier to completely surround ourselves with people who agree with us entirely. Our, we can filter our news, our friends, our Facebook friends, all of our information. And um, it is getting us really nowhere to presume that people who are different from, for, from us are just stupid. Um, throwing rocks, sort of lobbing rocks over the wall between my cadre and your cadre, as if you are just lacking in information. Um, uh, throwing them with contempt is getting scary. So that's what I wanted to write a book about. The Great non-conversations. Um, I wanted to set it in the place where I live, which is populated by um, um, rural, conservative, church-going farmers who are already, already suffering uh, greatly, great economic damage from the new, a new kind of weather in which uh, we have unprecedented and unpredictable weather events. Um, they are, at that same time, the least equipped and prepared to talk about or, or even believe in climate change. Why in the heck? That seems so interesting to me that I thought that it required a novel. And so this is, <laughs> what can I do? Um, so this is a, it's a story about science and faith, about modes of denial, um, farm economics, religion, class, culture wars, climate change, 
and, and that's probably enough for one novel. And um, I was planning, you can see, I think, way ahead on these things. I was going to read the first selections from the first chapter um, in which uh, this young farm wife who's at just at the end of a rope, she's 29 years old, she got st stuck in a life, that she got pregnant in high school and um, so was stuck in this shotgun marriage, living on um, her in-law's farm, uh, failing farm with this husband who's very sweet but dumb as a box of rocks and um, a mother-in-law who despises her and she's just tried as hard as she can for as long as she can and she's just about to cash it all in she's hiking up the mountain um, to meet the telephone lineman and um, she's stopped by she doesn't understand what it is. A, a, a lake of fire is what it looks like. Um, I was imagining you would have no idea what that was, but um, there's some hints, apparently. <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to keep this secret as I go along the tour. But, um, um, and so, she doesn't know what it is because she's un completely unprepared to see what she's seeing. So she hightails it down the mountain and... Um, can't tell anybody about it, but she just thinks that she's seen a burning bush and um, of some kind on steroids. And so she vows to get her life, um, pull her life together somehow. But um, as I said, she can't tell anybody why she was there. Um, so she's just living with this secret. So I'm going to read you from chapter 2. Uh, which is a few weeks later. She still hasn't told anyone. But, you know, if you read this book, don't skip the first chapter. There's still stuff in there you need to... <laughs> it's not optional. Um, but I will um, jump ahead and read you from chapter two, which is called Family Territory. You are listening to Barbara Kingsolver reading from... Flight Behavior at the Temple of Music and Art on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. This anticipation. It's delightful. So it's a sheep, for, a sheep farm. I mentioned that, right? Okay. On shearing day, the weather turned cool and fine. On the strength of that and nothing more, just a few degrees of temperature, the gray, the gray clouds scurried away to parts unknown like a fleet of barn cats. The chore of turning 90 ewes and their uncountable half-grown lambs through the shearing stall became a day's good work instead of the misery expected by all. As far as Delarobia could remember, no autumn shearing had been so pleasant. After all the months of dampness, the air inside the barn cellar seemed unnaturally dry. Stray motes of fleece flecked the beams of light streaming from the high windows, and the day smelled mostly of lanolin rather than urine and mud. The shorn fleeces were dry enough to be skirted while still warm off the sheep. Delarobia stood across from her mother-in-law at the skirting table where they worked with four other women, picking over the white fleece spread out between them. The six of them surrounded the table evenly like numbers on a clock, but with more hands, all reaching inward rather than out. 
There was no denying the clear sky was fortuitous. If the sheep had stood in rain and mud all morning waiting to be shorn, some of the wool would have been too fouled for sale. A lot of income turned on a few points of humidity. But good luck was too simple for Hester, that's the mother-in-law, who now declared that God had taken a hand in the weather. Delarobia felt provoked by her mother-in-law's self-congratulation. So, you're thinking God made the rain stop last night just for us? She asked. Know that the Lord God is mighty, replied Hester, who likely could live her whole life as a string of Bible quotes. She looked daunting in a red-checked blouse with pearl snaps and white piping. Everyone else wore old work clothes, but Hester nearly always dressed as if she might later be headed out for a square dance. The festivities never materialized. Okay, then, Delarobia said. He must hate the cooks. Her insolence gave her a rush, like a second beer on an empty stomach. If Hester was suggesting God as a co-conspirator in farming gains and losses, she should own up to it. The cooks next door had a tomato crop that had melted to liquid stench on the vine under the summer's nonstop rains, and their orchard grew a gray fungal call that was smothering the fruit and trees together. Valia Estep and her big-haired daughter, Crystal, both looked at their hands, and so did the two Norwood ladies. They combed the white fleece for burrs and bits of straw, as if the world turned on rooting out these imperfections. Neighbors always came on sharing day, starting with ham biscuits and coffee at 6 a.m. Not the unfortunate cooks, of course, who had failed to gain Hester's sanction in the five years since they'd moved here. But the Norwoods farm abutted the Turnbows on the other side of the ridge, going back several generations, and they were also sheep farmers, so this help would be returned at their own shearing. Valia and Crystal were motivated only by friendship, it seemed, unless there was some vague, unmentioned debt. They all attended Hester's church, which Delarobia viewed as a complicated pyramid scheme of moral debt and credit, resting ultimately on the shoulders of the Lord, but rife with middle managers. <laughs> I didn't say word one about those cook people, Hester said, not letting it go. Valia, did you hear me say word one about the cooks? I don't think you did, replied Mousy Valia. Delarobia knew her mother-in-law could command unlimited agreement from these women. Hester's confidence in her own rectitude was frankly unwomanly. She never doubted a thing about herself, not even her wardrobe. Hester owned cowboy boots in many colors, including a round-toed pair in lime green lizard. But at the moment, it was the self-interested logic that irked Delarobia. If Hester and Bear had bad luck, like the winter of terrible chest colds they'd suffered last year, they blamed the repairman who had failed to fix the furnace. But when the cook's little boy was diagnosed with cancer the same winter, Hester implied God was a party to the outcome. Delarobia had let this kind of talk slide for years, showing no more backbone really than Valia or any other toad in Hester's choir. Until now. Well, she said, it just seemed like that was your meaning. 
that God stopped the rain for us, but not the cooks. So he must like us better. Something's got into you, miss, and it is not good. You do, you do well to consult your maker on respecting your elders. Delarobia said quietly, the cooks are older than me, and I feel for them. Something had gotten into her, yes. The arguments she'd always swallowed like a daily ration of pebbles had, become, had begun coming into her mouth and leaping out like frogs. Her strange turnaround on the mountain had acted on her like some kind of shock therapy. She told her best friend Dovey she was seeing someone that day, but not even Dovey knew what she'd been called out to witness. A mighty blaze rising from ordinary forest. She had no name for that. No words to put on a tablet as Moses had when he marched down his mountain. But like Moses, she'd come home rattled and impatient with the pettiness of people's everyday affairs. She felt shamed by her made-up passion and the injuries she'd been ready to inflict. Hester wasn't the only one living in fantasy land with righteousness on her side. People just did that. This family, and maybe all others. They built their tidy, tidy houses of self-importance and special blessing and went inside and slammed the door, unaware the mountain behind them was aflame. Delarobia felt herself flung from complacency as if from a car crash, walking away from that veil of fire, feeling powerful and bereft. Valia piped up. Did y'all see that one on Jackass where they tried water skiing on a froze lake? The jeep busted through and sank. E-steps could be relied on to change the thread of any conversation. I can't get over they let people go on TV for that stuff, said Valia's daughter, Crystal, shaking her stockpile of curls. My boys ought to be famous. Crystal was a high school dropout with two kids, no history of a husband, and a well-known drinking problem. But she got to start over with a clean slate when saved by AA and the Mountain Fellowship Church. Now she always kept her bottom lip clenched in her teeth, as if she were about an inch away from punching someone's lights out. Salvation had its trade-offs, evidently. Hester reached back, divided her thin gray ponytail in half, and gave both sides a hard simultaneous yank to tighten it. This was one of about 5,000 personal habits that drove Delarobia nuts. <laughs> Why not just get a tighter ponytail band? Her mother-in-law seemed to use hair yanking as a signal. I'll yank you. If Delarobia meant to live out her natural life, in this family, the new policy of speaking her mind was going to be a bite in the butt. It had the effect of setting everyone in a room on edge and looking for the door, herself included. But it didn't feel like a choice. Something had opened in her and she felt herself calamitously tilting in like that jeep on the ice. That was Barbara Kingsolver reading from Flight Behavior at the Temple of Music and Art. Light behavior follows in the Kingsolver tradition of fiction that addresses issues of social justice and demonstrates the impact of culture and politics on human relationships. This has been part one of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager.
Thank you for listening to this encore presentation of 30 Minutes featuring Barbara Kingsolver, which originally aired on December 9, 2012.